Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Calling on Christ by Pastor Sean Wood. Good morning, Rock Christian Church. Um, welcome to church, January the 10th. Good to see you all. Good to be together. Good to come under God's Word together. Before we come under God's Word, I do have just a couple of announcements. The first one is, everything seems to be happening on January the 31st, but if you're penciling anything into your diary, January the 31st will be our next healing service. Now, we've kind of, as an eldership, our heart is on every month that has a five weeks or fifth week in it, that we, on the fifth week, we'll have a healing service. And our heart and our intention is to make space for God. We, we believe that God heals. We believe that God heals physically. We believe that God can heal you emotionally. We believe that God can heal you relationally. We believe that God can heal you mentally if need be. And so therefore, we want to make space for that. And so our healing service, the, the, the sermon will be centered around that. We're going to make space um, for us to pray for you and with you if need be, because we believe that God moves in power and we believe that he wants to. And so uh, we just open up the doors for God to do that. That's January 31, Sunday, January 31, God willing. Also God willing, and depending on what events transpire in that time, um, generally the 31st is uh, our newcomers lunch. Now, we hardly had any newcomers lunches last year because of COVID and and everything that happened. Um, If you have not received an invitation to a newcomer's lunch. Um, we're probably in the process of formulating an invitation. But and if you're wondering if that applies to you, if you have not been to a newcomer's lunch, um, then this is an invitation to you to join us for lunch. We want to we buy you lunch. It's after the service on uh, January 31. And our whole heart behind uh, the newcomer's lunch is we'll have uh, elders and board there that we can introduce you to the leadership. Uh, we want to kind of briefly, we'll just unpack what our vision is and, and what kind of uh, who we are. We want to explain a little bit of that. Also a time to answer questions. You might have some questions about uh, us as a church and, and what we do. And so we want to give the opportunity to ask those questions over an informal atmosphere of just having a bit of lunch together um, and getting to know you a little bit better as well, a little bit just to kind of get to know you, family, all those sorts of things a little bit better. So if that's you and, and you'd like to come and you haven't put your name down because we need to be able to cater for lunch, then please come and see myself or Pastor Liz. Uh, we'd love to put your name down. We'd love to have you join us. If you are a board member or an elder or a life group leader, um, and this applies to you, we want you to know whether you can come or not. So please let us know. Uh, we have much, 2020 for all the year that it was, uh, we were still, as a leadership, we were still busy planning and looking forward to this year for what God has for us. And we have a lot coming up. Um, we, we are formulating dates, but we are very soon, we will have a baptism service, God willing. Um, and that will simply be after this, the morning service, one Sunday, um, we will get a... Get, those that are interested in following Christ through the waters of baptism, then they're, they're, that will be part of it. But there'll be a barbecue lunch and there'll be, you can invite friends and family and we just have 
kind of some fellowship around baptism. So we'll let you know a date for that coming up very soon. Um, and we have many other things that we are stepping into this year, and we believe that God is moving us towards this year. Some exciting stuff um, that we will continue to announce as time goes on. Of course, uh, we're in this format and we're kind of in this position because of recent events. And uh, I'm going to pray now before we come around God's word and I'll pray concerning some of the national events. Father, we just come to you and Father, lockdowns are uncomfortable. Sometimes we don't understand everything. Sometimes we scramble to have all the answers. But Father, we just rest in you this morning. We know that you're sovereign, that you have not stepped off the throne. We know that you're all powerful. We know that you're bigger than COVID. Lord God, this morning as we come around your word, we know your word cannot be locked down. (laughs) It cannot be restricted. It cannot be put into a box. Your word will go forth. It will accomplish that for which you have sent it this morning. Lord God, we believe that. We believe that all these COVID events that are sweeping our country, Lord God, that you are in charge. And I just pray, Lord God, that you would arrest these events, Lord God, and that you would bring the shackles of COVID off this country in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are back into our series on Romans this week, and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to finish Romans 10, which we will today, and also Romans 11, interesting chapter, Romans 11, and then we move into actually where I've wanted to get to for a long time. Uh, We move into Romans chapter 12, which will be in the next couple of weeks, And, and Romans chapter 12 is very exciting because... Uh, the first 11 chapters, Paul has been very busy unpacking the truth of the message of the gospel. And we're going to cover some more of that again even this morning. But what Paul is also going to do by the time we reach chapter 12, he goes, okay, well, here's the truth of the gospel. Now, here's what our response should look like. And so that's what begins in Romans chapter 12. So we're going we're gonna to be, I, I look forward to that because um, we move on to some real practicalities concerning Christianity. We give all of this theology and all of this doctrine, we're going to give it legs in our life as we work our way through Romans chapter 12. It'll be a slow walk, um, but a very, very fruitful, I am sure. If you've got your Bibles this morning, wherever uh, you are, and uh, for those that are sitting in their PJs, and, and this format suits me somewhat a little bit better because um, I'm not aware of how many people fall asleep when I'm preaching in this format. But if you've got your Bibles or devices and you'd like to meet me in Romans chapter 10, uh, before we work our way through there, a little bit of what's brought us here. Um, We understand that uh, through eight chapters, Paul has unpacked the message of the gospel. But in three chapters, Romans 9, 10, 11, what Paul does is he kind of sets some parentheses or some brackets and says, now let's deal with Israel. There's some lingering questions about the truth of Christ. There were some lingering questions about the validity of the gospel message. And there was some kind of upheaval about it all. And and largely centered around, well, you know, if Jesus is the son of God, if this gospel is really true, then how come it hasn't gotten traction amongst the people of Israel, amongst the Jews, amongst the Pharisees and amongst the religious people? Well, how come they're not saved? And a lot of the Jews were standing up and going, well, you know what? God's abandoned us. And Romans 9 addresses that. God hasn't abandoned you. God hasn't forsaken his word of promise to you in the Old Testament. No, in fact, in the person of Jesus, Paul highlights, God hasn't forsaken you. He has fulfilled his promises 
That's what Romans 9 is about. Romans 9 highlights to us that, that God forming a relationship with us is not based on anything in us. It is based on his grace. It is based on his mercy. Uh, we, we had a look at the scripture that says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And what we came to understand there was, uh, we often focus on the re- God rejecting Esau or the apparent rejection of Esau by God. And, and that's not what the emphasis is. The emphasis isn't why would God reject Esau, but how could God love Jacob? And it asks us the same question. This isn't about rejection or anything. This is about God. How could you possibly love us? That's the message of Jacob and Esau. And what we found was this hatred was actually, the language that is used here is not that God hates as we kind of hate or understand hate, but it's more that it's more a preference for his mercy and grace found in Jacob. Um, it's, not about the, it's not about birthright. It's not about all those things that were linked to Esau but rather it's about God's, God's mercy and God's grace lavished and his love lavished upon Jacob. We worked our way through Romans chapter 9 and, and it kind of finishes, Paul kind of sums up Romans chapter 9 and it, it moves us very beautifully into chapter 10. Verse 30 of chapter 9 says, What shall we say then, that the Gentiles who did not pursue a righteousness have obtained, the, have obtained it? That is, the, the righteousness is by faith. They've got a relationship with God. They've got a a righteousness. Now, this word righteousness or righteous is very important because it's a positional word. It speaks about the position that we hold before God. The Gentiles have obtained a very high position before God because they grabbed it by faith, verse 31, but that Israel who pursued a law that would kind of lead to this righteousness, they didn't succeed in reaching it. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, says Paul. And they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. That stumbling stone hasn't gone away. That stumbling stone is still enormously prevalent today. And it's it's where Paul wants to land us in Romans chapter 10. Um, Through Romans chapter 10 today, we're going to uh, look at one overarching theme that Paul wants us to know. And that is this, that the reason that Israel is not saved, it's their responsibility. We're going to have a look at how Paul comes to that conclusion. It's their responsibility that they're not saved. The, the, the responsibility falls in their lap for their salvation. And it's because they haven't responded the way the gospel calls us to respond. But as we work our way through Romans chapter 10, we have to ask ourselves the question. And so uh, today I hope to bring this right home to each and every one of us today. We have to ask ourselves, how does it apply to us? This is how we, these are the questions we need to ask when interpreting Scripture. It's all right to have these highfalutin ideas and theology and doctrine and all of these things, very important things. But at the end of the day, we must take a step back and go, okay, all that's lovely, but how does it apply to me? How does Romans 10 apply to me? And as we, as we work our way through, uh, if you're listening to me today and you're seeking an assurance of your salvation, you will find it in the words that we look at in Romans chapter 10. If, if you're listening to me today and you're wondering, well, I, I, I've never really crossed that line. How is it that I can be saved? What, what do I have to do to be saved? Well, I'm, we're going to answer that question today too. And what we're going to see is this, that the call of the gospel, 
And the call to the people of Israel and the call to each and every single one of us is to live a very simple faith. Is to live this faith and also there is a mobilization call in this chapter. Our vision statement here at The Rock is to know Christ. We, we really had a really long, hard look at that last, last week when we looked at gaining Christ from, from the epistle to the Philippians. But the second part of our vision statement is to make him known. And that's a big part of chapter 10 today. That's a big part of where we're going to go with chapter 10. But let's have a look at what Paul's got to say as we work our way through. Chapter 10 and uh, verse 1. It says, Brothers... My heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that's speaking about Israel, that's speaking about the religious people of the day, that's speaking about the Pharisees. And Paul's heart's desire and his prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. They were very religious. This is important that we must know. You see, the Jews of the day and the Pharisees of the day, they were very religious. They wore the right clothes. They read the Bible. Well, they read the Old Testament. They read the Bible. They read the prophecies of the Bible. They, they read all the parts of the Bible, but yet they were not saved. Verse 2, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They have a, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And uh, it, it's undoubted that by the time we reach this point that the Pharisees were very zealous. In fact, they have removed themselves far from where they first began. You see, the Pharisees and the religious people of this day, where they began was, uh, they began in the time of exile in Babylon. And what had happened was, uh, it turns out that exile, the most horrendous circumstances that Israel ever thought could happen to them, they've been removed from Jerusalem. They've been moved away from the temple into a, a very foreign, wicked, evil place. And while they're there, they realize that they still have to live for God. And the Pharisees uh, come together and they decide, we're going to uphold the knowledge of the law. We're going to enforce it into our daily life. And it was a very fruitful time for uh, Israel because after this exile, there's no recorded national apostasy of Israel. Israel learned to worship God no matter the surrounding circumstances. And the Pharisees were born and the Pharisees were birthed as a group of people that said, you know what, we're going to meet in small groups and we're going to talk about the word of God. We're going to talk about how the law applies to us no matter where we are. And so we have the Pharisees and they were zealous for God, man. I mean, they were zealous. I mean, there were, there were times in their history where uh, a Hellenistic ruler, uh, I think it was 167 BC, he, he kind of overtakes... Uh, the Jerusalem and the Jews, and he, and he ransacks the temple and he sacrifices a pig on the altar like Jews and swine were just, they were filthy, unclean animals. And he makes the priests kind of eat the, the, the pork and the swine. But, and he tries to impose uh, this kind of Hellenistic kind of culture upon the Pharisees, but they stand their ground. They are zealous for God. They uphold the law. And we see that in, in what we know as the Maccabean Revolt. And if you, if you want to read history, you can read all about it. It happened around 160 to 167 BC. And then we have the Maccabean Revolt where they overcome this. And they have a, a zeal for upholding the truth and the knowledge of the one true God. They were zealous 
for God, but they had drifted away from their moorings. And Paul says, you know, they've got a zeal for God, but it's not mixed with knowledge. And this is, this is very dangerous, but it's very prevalent today. We have people that can be very zealous for God without knowledge. Knowledge is enormously important. The foundational knowledge of who God is and how, we, how he interacts with our lives and how we interact with him, how we relationally interact with God. The, no, the knowledge of how that happens is enormously important for each and every one of us. It is enormously dangerous if you separate those two. We have all the zeal and all the goosebumps and all the pump and pomp and ceremony over here, but if it's not mixed with a sound knowledge of God and His Word, you're in a lot of trouble. And we can see that today. We can see that across the landscape of the church today. How how those two things can. But let me give you an idea of what this looks like. Let me give you an idea of uh, of what a misdirected zeal can do. If you walk into an airport now, you will notice that uh, before you get onto the plane, you have to go through an enormous amount of security checks. They, they check your luggage, they check your person uh, before you get on. Well, that has heightened over the last 20 years because what happened was, in America, nine very zealous men, they were zealous, but they were zealous for, for a, a God that does not exist. They had a, they, you see, they were... Islamic extremists, they were terrorists, and we know that these nine men, in, in the fullness of their zeal, uh, they crashed planes into buildings, they hijacked planes, and they changed the landscape of air travel from that point onwards. They impacted the nation of America, and they impacted Western culture enormously. My question is, if nine men with a zeal and a comp- an overzealousness for a complete misconception of who God is, if they can revolutionise and deeply impact the Western culture, what would happen today if the church stood up with a right knowledge of who God is and mixed that with zeal, what would happen? Mm. See, the problem in this time was, I bear them witness, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God. They were ignorant of the truth of the message of Jesus Christ and the righteousness that comes as a free gift from God. This position before God is free. You can stand before God as if there's nothing between you and him because of the completed work of Christ. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God and they were seeking to establish their own. They were ignorant of the truth of Christ. They were seeking to establish their own righteousness. But here's where they fell down. Here's what the call of the gospel is to each and every one of us. They did not submit to God's righteousness. They would not submit to God's righteousness. These these Pharisees, these Israelites, these these religious people of the day, they wanted to be able to save themselves. They, they looked to themselves. They relied upon themselves. They would, they would read more. They would learn more. Their, 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 their phylacteries would increase. That was the record of how much scripture they had recorded to memory. And, and these guys would, would pump themselves up. They would, they would pump themselves up. They, it was all about the clothes they wear. You know, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you have nullified the word of God because of your traditions. Mm, another danger that faces the landscape of the church some 2,000 years later. 
For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Wow. Christ is the end of trying to build your own platform of righteousness. All the way back in Genesis chapter 11, you can read the account of the Tower of Babel. You can read the account of what happens when people say, we will, in our own strength and according to our own ingenuity, we will build a tower that reaches into the heavens. We will reach God. That's the message of the Tower of Babel. And we are still building towers of Babel today. We are, even 2,000 years after Jesus has come, we still think that we can build towers that will reach God by our own merit, by our own brownie points, by our own strength. And what the message of the gospel is, you don't have to build your own tower. You just have to step upon the, <clears throat> the tower, which is Jesus Christ. Blessed be his wonderful name. But the righteousness, uh, verse 5, sorry, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Bear with me for a moment. Uh, uh, But the righteousness based on faith says, and you might say, well, okay, how do I know whether I'm on the right path? How do I know whether I'm on the right track? How can I tell whether I'm, whether I'm being religious uh, or, whether I'm, or whether I'm actually kind of on the right track and, and, and I'm stepping onto the righteousness? Each and every one of us have an inner dialogue. We, we, we may not admit it. We may not want to face it. But we, we kind of have an inner dialogue. We kind of have an inner umpire that's kind of wrestling with our attitudes and our motivations. And, and what Paul points to is, he says, the way that you can tell is by doing a little bit of scrutiny on your inner dialogue. Have a listen to what the dialogue sounds like. But the righteousness based on faith, it says something. Do not say in your heart. Do not say with inside of yourself. So the righteousness that's by faith does not say this. Who will ascend into heaven? That's what Paul says first. What does Paul mean by that? Who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. What a, Paul, what are you talking about here? What Paul's pointing to in each one of our lives is that inner dialogue where we think within ourselves that we have to scale the heights of heaven and pull Jesus down by, by our own systems. By, by our, you know, we have to break on through to heaven and we kind of pull Christ down. No, no, no. What Paul says is don't say in your hearts who will ascend into heaven. Don't think within yourself, says Paul. Don't allow that inner dialogue to let you think that you have to scale heaven and pull Jesus down. No, Paul says, Jesus has already come. Here's a lesson for the landscape of church in the 21st century. Here's a lesson for every single one of us today. You know, so often church life can become, it's like we're seeking some kind of secret formula that pulls the presence of God down. Each church is kind of on this kind of secret kind of, uh, we want to tap into the secret formula where we have the presence of God. We don't have to tap into any secret formula. We don't have to have the right program program systems or anything like that. We don't have to sing all the right songs in all the right way to kind of pull heaven down and and to pull the presence of God down. We don't have to do any of that. His presence is already here. We are unaware of his presence because we're closed off, clogged up. We don't have to scale the heights of heaven. We don't have to pull Christ down. You don't have to save yourself. When you turn up here on a Sunday morning, you don't have to scale heaven and pull the presence of God down. The call is to be more open. 
and surrendered. Lord God, I come with expectation. Oh, let us be open to your presence. Mm. No, no, no. It also doesn't say uh, uh, that is to bring, who, to bring Christ down. Verse 7, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up. And this is a reference uh, to obviously Jesus going to the belly of the earth and conquering over all the forces of darkness. What's Paul saying here? You don't have to descend into the abyss. You don't have to reach down and atone for your own sins. You don't have to pull Christ up from the dead. No, no, no. What you have to do is you have to step into his completed work. For those that are are reading the pastor's comments today, you'll get a little bit of what I understand. You might understand a little bit more about what it means to step into the completed work. That's the call of the gospel. The invitation of the gospel is not for you to save yourself. It's not for you to reach out to Christ. It's not for you to build your own platform. It's for you to surrender. No, the righteousness of faith doesn't say that we have to scale the heights of heaven at all. The righteousness of faith says we don't have to descend into the abyss at all. We don't have to make this happen at all. No, no, no. But what does it say? Well, Paul goes on and says, let your inner dialogue sound a little bit like this. The word is near you. Now, that's a, that's a reference from Deuteronomy chapter 30, where Moses is about to step off the playing field hand everything over to Joshua as they, as they move on into the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, after summing up all the law and everything, he says, you know, this word, this law, it's near you. You don't have to reach out to it. You don't have to pull it down. You don't have to make it all happen. It's already near you. It's attainable and it's achievable. That's what I love about the gospel. That's what I love about the invitation to salvation. It's an invitation to step into what has already been done. How do we spell religion? D-O. How do we spell salvation? D-O-N-E. Religion means I must do. Salvation in Christ means it's all been done. And we just have to surrender and submit. The message of the gospel comes as a huge offence to the self-reliant and the proud. <clears throat> the word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. What is the word of faith that we proclaim? It is the message about Jesus Christ. It is the message about who he is. And it is the message <clears throat> about what he has done. I, I really, really appreciate Timothy Keller. I can remember uh, watching Timothy Keller in a Q&A session, a question and answer question. And there were a lot of questions that were coming towards Timothy Keller and and those questions sounded a little bit like this you know questions about the existence of God and and trying to make sense of God in our world and he says you know what he says before we answer any other questions about whether God exists and, and and moral and good and bad and suffering and all of those other questions before we think about answering any of those questions the one question that we all have to answer is the question concerning Jesus because he says if Jesus is Lord if Jesus is the Son of God, then that puts a completely different light on every other question. And often, how we answer the question of who Jesus is determines how we read the rest of Scripture, 
and all of the apparent contradictions within it. The message or the word of faith that is near us is the message about who Jesus is. This is the question that we've got to answer. Who Jesus is, what he has done, what it means for me. I want to move on into verses of chapter 10 that I think we will all know. We're going to keep moving now as we unpack the word that is near you part. Verse 9 says, it goes on and says, because if you confess with your mouth, now most of us will know this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the question is, okay, this word is near us, this word is around about us, but how is it that this word saves us? That's a really good question to answer. How is it that this word saves us? The unfortunate thing is that we have tried to boil this down to some kind of formula. We have tried to boil this down to some kind of repeat these three sentences after me. We have tried to boil this down to if you want Jesus to come and impact your life, then just quickly say this prayer and and go on living your life however you want to. That's not the message of the gospel. That wasn't what Jesus meant when he said, come follow me. When Jesus said, come follow me, he was talking about a lifetime commitment of all of ourselves. That's what's, that's what's tied up in these words. So if you're asking yourself the question today, okay, this message about Jesus, this, this gospel message, how is it that it saves me? How is it, that it's, how is it that it saves us? How do we know if we're on the right path? Now, uh, we're going we're gonna to talk more about this when we get to verse 13 as well. But how is it that we can know? How does this save us? Well, I believe there are two points that we need to pick up from this scripture. The first one is, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. The first thing is that this word is is a word that must be known. That's very important. Number one, how does this save us? It is a word that must be known. We must know the truth about who Jesus is. And knowing is an inward transaction. We must... It is a truth, the truth about who Jesus is, the truth about the fact that he is actually the Lord. Yes, he is the Lord. Yes, he is our Lord. Yes, he is Lord. And more importantly, he must become my Lord, your Lord. The second is this word is a, is a word that must be believed. And we're going to unpack both of them in a by looking at us at the life of a man. One of Jesus' disciples was a disciple by the name of Thomas. And Thomas is going to help us to understand this transaction. That's the best way to kind of describe it. You see, we're not told a lot about Thomas, but what we do know about Thomas is enormously important. In the Gospel of John is where you read the most about Thomas. And uh, it's in the Gospel of John, chapter 11, that we see Jesus announces to his disciples, you know what, it's time to go back to Jerusalem. And they think, you're crazy. Why would you want to go back to Jerusalem? Don't, have you forgotten Jesus? Nobody likes you in Jerusalem. The religious people don't like you. Everybody wants to kill you in Jerusalem. You want to go back to Jerusalem? These guys, uh, these guys are seeking you. They are, they, they've got charges out against you. They want to bring you in for questioning. And you want to go back to Jerusalem? And while they're having this kind of dialogue, Thomas stands up and says, we must go with him, even if it means that we die with him. Wow. But fast forward, fast forward a few weeks. 
And Jesus is crucified. Thomas is bewildered. Thomas is scattered like almost all of the other disciples. He runs. This Thomas that says we would die with him, he runs, he scatters. He looks at Jesus upon the cross like all of the disciples and, and wonders to himself where the glory of God is to be found in the cross. Thomas had given up everything to follow Jesus and now he thinks everything has come to an end and, and Jesus has gone, he's dead, it's all over. And then I'm paraphrasing now, but as we read in the Gospel of John, the disciples come to Thomas and say, we, after the death of Jesus, they say, we have seen the Lord. Immediately Thomas knows what this means. Thomas means that if you've seen the Lord, then he has been risen from the dead. If Jesus is risen from the dead, then this is an implication that will involve all of my life. He is who he says he is. He is the Son of God. He is the absolute uh, Messiah, the sent one, Jesus the Christ. And, and so what Thomas actually says is, you know what? I will not believe. Unless I can place my finger in the hole in his hand, says Thomas, and unless I can place my hand in his side, Thomas says, I will not believe. And this is what I love about Jesus. Because what Jesus does to Thomas, Jesus does for each and every single one of us. When Jesus does meet Thomas, Jesus doesn't rebuke Thomas. Jesus doesn't mention those words. Jesus doesn't rebuke him for running away or doing any of those things. Jesus meets Thomas right where he's at. Just like he does for every one of us. Jesus says to Thomas, he says, Thomas, you put your finger here. You put your hand here. Jesus says to Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas, after this, says something enormously profound. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Thomas didn't say the Lord. Thomas didn't say our Lord. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. The process for each one of us individually is different, but the result must be the same. This word of faith, this message of the gospel is a message that we each must know. There must be a transaction just like there was for Thomas. I want to challenge every person in here that says that Jesus is my Lord and he's my saviour. Have you arrived at the point that Thomas did? What Thomas and others highlight is you can be around Jesus, but there's still a, a transaction of lordship that must take place in our lives. The second thing is this word is a word that must be believed. And in the Gospel of John, we get an understanding of what the word believe actually means. It's not just an agreement to facts within our mind. In fact, what it is, this word believe is a verb which speaks about a, a life commitment. It speaks about when it says believe in our heart, it's talking about the whole self. The heart is symbolic of our whole self. And it is the message that when we believe, it is a commitment of our whole self casting our trust and reliance in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. That's what it means to believe the word of the gospel. That's what it means to believe the word. It means that there's been an inward transaction and it looks like something in your life. It looks like it's, it's taken hold in your life. The next verse says, 
Verse 10 will go on and say, For with the heart one believes and is justified or made righteous, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And we have broken this down to be all about what we say with our mouth, and then on you go, you've made the profession. But what this actually means is that if there's an inward transaction, there is expression. It's a call to live a very simple faith of reliance and trust in the person of Jesus Christ. If we, if we confess with our mouths and we believe in our hearts, let's read on. We haven't finished with this subject yet. I love what comes next. Verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's a reference from Isaiah. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Now, I love verse 13. Oh, how I love, we all know verse 13. Verse 13 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you are sitting here this morning, if you are, if you are listening to me this morning and you're saying to yourself, how do I know whether I am saved? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. We're going to answer that question. If you're sitting here this morning, or if you're listening to me this morning and you are in any way, shape or form going, well, I haven't made that decision. I haven't crossed that line. How do I do that? We're going to answer that question for you in this verse. It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I love this verse. Uh, uh, If you're a Calvinist, please read this verse because what is tied up in the word everyone is actually everybody. We believe everybody matters. Why do we believe that? Because everybody matters to Jesus. That's why it's important to us. Every person matters and every person is important in this place because every person is important to Jesus. The the invitation to salvation was an invitation to everybody. Every, Every Jew can be saved. Every Gentile can be saved. Every Pharisee can be saved, every good person can be saved, every religious person can be saved, every, every coloured person can be saved, every bad person can be saved, every person that's been to jail can be saved, everyone. There is nobody in that word that is excluded from the invitation. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, it's very important that when you call, you call upon the name of Jesus alone. It's not just a God. It's not just one of the many gods. No, it's the God, Jesus. But what does it mean to, be, to call upon him? What does it mean for us to call? Because everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, what does it look like? Do we have to, do we have to phone him? Do you have to, has anybody got him on speed dial? No, that's not what this means. The word call here, what does it mean? It means that the, first and foremost, it is an inward recognition of who Jesus is. It's an absolute recognition of who Jesus is, and it's also a, a, an inward recognition of our absolute individual desperate need for Jesus. That's what it means to call upon the name of Jesus. It's to recognize who he is and it is to, <clears throat> and it is to reach out to him. It is to uh, acknowledge who he is and acknowledge that we need him. It sounds like this. Lord, save me. 
Lord, help me. There was, a, there was a man in the Gospels that said those words. Jesus comes out to the disciples on the lake. And Peter sees him walking and they're fearful. And Jesus says, it's me, do not be afraid. And Peter says, Jesus, if it is you, let me come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. And we all know the story, right? Peter gets out of the boat and we all know what's happening. He, he, he sees the... He sees the wind and he sees the waves and he becomes frightened. And as he's beginning to sink, he says three really important words, Lord, save me. And what happens in that moment before he says those words? What happens is Peter recognises that he's completely and utterly helpless. He also recognises that the only one that can save him is Jesus. And so he reaches out and with three words he says, Lord, save me. That's what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. If you're sitting here this morning going, I wonder if I'm saved, uh, uh, do you recognize who Jesus is? Do you recognize your need for him? And <laughs> will you cry out, Lord, save me? You know, I, I am absolutely a child of God. I confess that I'm a child of God. I believe in Jesus. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Savior. But you know, there are days... And it's almost every day when I wake up and I feel like I've got to say, Lord, save me. Do I ever lost my salvation? Do I have an uncertainty in my salvation? No, that's not what I mean. But every day I feel like I've got to reach out and I've got to say, Lord, in myself, I am completely helpless. And in myself, I am completely insufficient. And you are all sufficient. And I reach out with the words, Lord, save me. Lord, help me. You see, surrendering to Christ is not a one-time action. It's a lifetime commitment. Of course, uh, that's what salvation looks like for the Jews. That's what it looks like for the Greeks. That's what it looks like for every single person. But there is a call to mobilization here. Paul says, well, okay, that's great. But, but how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How can anybody call? How can anybody come to the recognition of who Jesus is unless there's been an inward belief? But, but then he goes on and says, but how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? There is a mobilization. There is a, there is a physical, tangible call to evangelize and to, to make Jesus known. We make Jesus known with our words, with, with, with preaching the gospel, and you make Jesus known with the life that you live. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. They have not all obeyed. Here's the very, very sad truth that has, that has been the case for many thousands of years. The word of God goes forth and not every person accepts it, not every person obeys it. That doesn't remove the duty of the church to send forth the word of God, to send forth the knowledge of Christ. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The book of Revelation is a book to seven churches and every church that is addressed, it starts off with these words, let him who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. How many of us know that you can listen but not hear what it is that God's got to say? The, the spiritual ears of this world are clogged up As we come to a close this morning, you might be asking yourself, what does this look like in my life? 
Jesus is my saviour, Jesus is my Lord. What does this look like? Where do I go from here, Pastor? What does Romans chapter 10 look like? The call is for us to live our faith in this world and for not, not to allow this world and this culture to shape us, but for us to shape the culture. That's what Jesus did. Jesus was countercultural. And I've resolved this year in many different facets that I want to be countercultural. I don't want the culture to shape me. I want to be actively shaping the culture around me if I can. And for those of us that have read the book of Daniel, as I bring this to a close, many of us maybe mistakenly think that the book of Daniel is the book about Daniel and that the book of Daniel is all about Daniel. And Daniel's mentioned and his name's on the front of the book, but at the end of the day, the book of Daniel is actually the book and the record and the account of an awesome, powerful, majestic God who deeply impacts a very evil and wicked nation, a nation by the name of Babylon. And God impacts that nation through four men who resolve to take a stand for God. You see, what we actually see in four young men, we're talking Daniel who is no older than 16. And in Daniel 1 verse 8, it says that Daniel had resolved not to defile himself. And what that means is before Daniel even gets to Babylon, before he's even arrived at his position of exile, he has resolved within himself, I'm going to live for God in Babylon. Babylon is not going to shape me. And what God does is he shapes Babylon through four men. The record of the Daniel is how God impacts not only an evil and wicked nation, which is Babylon, but he, the, God deeply impacts their ruler. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of Babylon, is the only recorded pagan king who is converted to faith. Spends seven years eating grass for it to happen, but he finally looks up. Interesting. And the message of Daniel to us is when the people of God decide to take a stand for God, have a look what God will do. As we bring this to a close this morning, as you, wherever you're listening to me this morning, I would ask you to pause and allow God to just point inside of your life. question to each and every one of you that are listening to me this morning is, will you take a stand for God? If you have not been saved, please, and it's something that you know you need to do and you want help, please reach out to somebody. Pick up the phone, ring the office, ring me, email somebody, get a hold of somebody. But for many of us in this that are listening and right here, right now, For many of us right now, Jesus is our Lord. We have called upon the name of the Lord. And I'm asking you to take a stand for Jesus. I'm asking you to live the faith. I'm asking you to live a simple faith. I'm asking you to not only know Christ in greater measures, but to live a life that makes him known. I believe that if we as a church would take a stand for God, we would be amazed at what he will do in the world around us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of the message of Jesus Christ that has come to save us. Jesus, thank you that we step into your victory, we step into your rights. Father, I pray right now for everybody listening to me that hasn't crossed that line. 
that you put your finger on their hearts, Lord God, and that they would call out to you in recognition of who Jesus is, in recognition of their need, that they would call out for you today. There may be people listening to me today that, have, that are in relationship with God, but they've slipped out of fellowship with you and they've kind of slipped back from fellowship with you, Lord God, and, and those flames have grown. I pray that they would say those three words, Lord, save me. They feel themselves sinking. I pray that they would say the words, Lord, save me. And I pray for everybody else listening to me that we all collectively and corporately would stand for you, Lord God. If nine people can revolutionise air travel across the Western world and impact Western culture, Lord God, what will happen if your church would stand up for you with a zealousness that is accompanied with a right knowledge of the living God? Father, I pray that in your church. I pray that for us in this place. In your wonderful and glorious name. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.